Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Charles Robinson, and welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. As the weather warms, there is more outdoor activity. If you happen to have a green thumb, you know it's time to prepare your garden for the coming season. If you're a seasoned veteran or a novice, we're going to give you some tips from experts. Julia Craddock runs the Howard Pete Rawlings Conservatory. She'll take us inside and outside this horticultural treasure at Drood Hill Park. Some people consider gardens sacred spaces. Anne-Marie Champ knows this all too well. As she plants various flowers and watches them bloom from spring through fall, it provides a mental health break. Denzel Mitchell is a farmer with the Farm Alliance of Baltimore. He'll tell you how to prep what ideally grows in this area and how to keep those critters from making a meal of your work. So first of all, I'm delighted to be joined by Denzel Mitchell. He's a kind of a gardener. <laughs> Is that the best way to describe you? Uh, no, I, I probably stopped gardening when I was uh, in high school. I, I, I definitely consider myself a farmer. A farmer. Well, let's, let's talk about some things because a lot of people around this time of the year start thinking about what can I put in the ground and what can I grow? What are some do's and don'ts that you would uh, tell people to do? Well, do, um, if you're in ground growing, one of the first things that you should always do is get your soil tested. Test your soil for nutrients so that you know what kind of amendments um, you need to use or what, what might be missing. If you're growing in the city, um, it's important to know if there's any contaminants in the soil, uh, whether it be lead or chromium or or anything like that. So that's always the first thing. The second thing is um, do take note of how much sunlight the space, the area that you're growing in is getting. The third is what is your water source? Do you have a consistent supply of, uh, of, of water to irrigate your plants? So those are probably the first three. I want to ask about this because a number, a lot of times I'm used to doing this. I'll go to uh, my local hardware store and, and and grab a bag of topsoil. Is mm -hmm. that a good idea? Yeah, in a small scale, um, whether you're doing container gardening, whether you are you've built some raised beds in your yard, one of the things that you can certainly ensure and feel comfortable about is that the soil that you buy in a store is clean and it's accessible, obviously it's expensive. You know, buying in bulk, you know, is easier, but everybody doesn't have access to a pickup truck or or a larger vehicle. Um, so yeah, that's perfectly acceptable, Perfect, perfectly fine. I don't recommend uh, necessarily getting some like extra fancy growing medium, but if you can find some a clean topsoil and then you can mix in some compost, that's that's a great place to start. Maybe a little sand if you feel like you need it, or the 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 soil that you're you're buying is is a very heavy, and has a, a a huge clay component. Then you can also mix in a little sand. 
I was going to say that the compost issue, a lot of people are trying that. You have to let that compost sit for a while before you can start using it. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But yes, if you are making your own compost, there are some specific um, techniques and uh, strategies that you need to employ. It's not just about it sitting as a static pile. Um, a lot of times, if you do that, you invite rats and raccoons if you are composting food food waste. So you you invite vermin to a static pile. You you know a, a compost pile is something that needs to be managed. You you need to kind of watch it. It might need some water. You know it might be getting a little too hot. It needs to get turned and uh, and aerated. Um, so there's a you know that's a whole process. I don't know how deep you want to go, but it's not enough to just let let it sit. And it, but it does take some time to turn food scraps into compost. Let's let's move ahead a little bit and let's talk about. What are some of the ideal plants that you can grow in this region? Uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm a big tomato guy. And every mm -hmm. year mm -hmm. I try and outgrow my, my neighbor's tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, tomatoes are, tomatoes are a big one. They're incredibly popular. Uh, people love tomatoes. I'm a huge fan of, of heirloom tomatoes myself. So they're very, very easy to, uh, to get started. They do take a little bit of management. They need to be pruned. Um, trimmed, trellised, um, but once you get them going and, and established, you know they'll they'll uh, last you for quite some time. Tomatoes are great. Peppers, eggplants. I mean, the great thing about growing in this region is there's a wide range of things that you can grow. You can even grow tropical um, crops like ginger and turmeric in this region as well. Um, ginger is is a really interesting thing to grow. Herbs. We're kind of embarking on the summer season. Um, and so most gardeners, most folks that are growing diversified vegetables are kind of transitioning to their summer crops. So their nightshades, their eggplant, peppers, tomatoes, their curcubits, their cucumbers, cantaloupe, watermelon, summer squash, and not so much into leafy greens and, and roots. You know, those are kind of bookend, um, bookend crops. So you kind of start the season with peas and potatoes usually around um, St. Patrick's Day in this region. Um, and then you can grow lettuce um, pretty much up until, uh, I'd say, early June, depending on what the summer looks like. Then you need to take a little break from lettuce unless you're really skilled. You can do some summer lettuces um, and then you would get and then you would kind of get back into your lettuces, leafy greens, collards, kales, um, those kind of crops end of September. You can grow pretty much anything you want, anything from asparagus to zucchini in this region. Okay, I got one other piece of vermin that uh, seems to enjoy my yard, and those are groundhogs. I've got this groundhog that has basically feasted on all of my garden. Anything, ideas on that? Uh, a dog. <laughs> a dog. <laughs> yeah, a dog. No, I mean honestly, yeah. I mean the the best protection against a groundhog is a is a great ratting dog who who is going to give the groundhog some smoke because otherwise i mean you there's not a whole lot that you can do uh, outside of you know looking like a cartoon character every time you go out to the garden you know you got to take your stick of dynamite out there you're going to have to bring your water hose out and try to fill up the hole and and pack up pack up the escape hatch 
and then drop a stink bomb down there. I mean, you know, and then you're not gardening. You uh, you you're at war with the groundhog. So so my recommendation is if you if you're serious about that life and you got the space, you 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 need to get your garden companion that's on four legs. That's uh that you know that's their job is to is to take care of the groundhog. You know, you could try fencing, but you know they're burrowing animals, and so the the fencing that you put in is going to have to be at least three or four feet um, underground uh, around the garden space to keep the groundhogs out, and that and that doesn't always work. I want to get out of here on this, and that's simply this: um, what are some tips that you would give gardeners about specifically? Uh, if I live in an apartment complex, I want to grow some tomatoes. Is that plausible? Um, it's plausible. They're not going to be great tomatoes. No offense, but they you can certainly grow. There are, there are several varieties of tomatoes that are considered container or patio tomatoes. You can get a, a big pot. You know, you want to get a big pot that's like maybe three, somewhere between three and five gallons large. You're going to fill it up with great soil. Um, you're going to need to put a tomato cage in it or some sort of trellising system. And then you can you need to get a, a determinant variety of tomato plant, a very, very small determinant variety that isn't going to need a lot of support. Because technically, tomatoes, for example, are vines. And so they'll grow as long as they can. In this region, you know, because we have like legitimate seasons and the weather and the, the amount of sunlight changes, that's what slows the tomato plant down. But if if there, there were none of those barriers, the tomato plant would just continue to grow. You can grow peppers. You can grow eggplants. Um, there, are some, there are some smaller varieties of summer squash, like bush varieties that you can grow in pots. Um, it's really uh, then about managing sunlight. Um, you don't you want to make sure that the plants get plenty of sunlight, but don't get too hot. And then the second part of that is making sure that they're well watered. And so um, whatever growing medium you use, you know, needs to have a very, very high amount of organic matter. So it's going to hold water. And then a, a lot of times in, in pots or containers, especially in your windowsill where it's getting direct sunlight for many, many hours of the day. Um, the plants need to get a little bit more water than what you would normally expect because of the volume of soil is so much, so much smaller and the heat is so much more intense. Denzel, tell us where uh, they could find you if they had a question. You can find me at on Instagram at um, Farm Alliance Baltimore. You can also email us at info at Farm Alliance Baltimore or me directly at Denzel at farmalliancebaltimore.org. Thanks, Denzel. We appreciate it. Thank you. Willie Flowers' day job is the head of the Maryland NAACP. His side hustle is bringing people together at the Freetown Farm, which is connected to the Harriet Tubman Cultural Center in Howard County. The executive who coordinates all the volunteers and planning on the farm is Jonathan McKinney. So I'm delighted to be joined by Willie Flowers. He uh, basically runs the state NAACP these days, but when he's not doing that, he's out sometimes in his backyard and other places farming. He is joined by Jonathan McKinney, and he's a community organizer and also a farmer. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us here on Future City. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. First and foremost, Willie, let's talk a little, a little bit about how and the why of farming is in your blood, if you will. 
Hey man, I'm from Alabama. I grew up um, farming. I didn't. I didn't grow up farming. I grew up working in a, in, in my grandfather's garden, and I grew up hating it. Uh, but uh, I love to eat food. I love okra. I, I didn't appreciate the fact that we had um, access to food anytime, particularly during the growing seasons. And um, it just happened that years later, I was pulled into working in the health space and doing a community garden was like low hanging fruit to um, expressing and having some independence when it came down to, to growing your own food, um, being independent to, in some day, some way, and then having good food because, you know, you can taste the difference between what you get from a grocery store or any store and what you grow on your own. So it's all exciting to me now. I was lucky enough to be in a position, as you know, in Park Heights, where there's plenty of land and we took advantage of it at several levels. And it really helped me to to return to what I thought was uh, was hell. <laughs> but um, I learned to love it. And I, I, I certainly appreciate not just growing food, uh, obviously appreciate eating it, but working with people to understand that we should return to the earth. Well, let's talk about this new farm that you got out in Howard County. Tell us where it is and its connection to what you're trying to do. It is at um, in the old community. It's called Freetown in Columbia, Maryland. I think it was called Simpsonville. And um, it's on a site called Freetown Farm that's directly across the street from um, Harriet Tubman High School, the former colored high school and um, it's been um, restored and it's a cultural center now. So it's it's very interesting that so much is going on in that space. So it's on um, Harriet Tubman Lane and the farm is right there. So we have a, about a quarter acre plot on that location and that's where we do our thing. Jonathan, I wanna ask about what's growing on that farm because a lot of people think that all you gotta do is throw the seeds in the ground and things start to grow. I don't think that's the case, is it? No, no, it's not necessarily the case. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Um, we've been blessed this year, this season so far, we planted cabbage and cauliflower, broccoli, a um, few different kinds of kale. Uh, everyone is excited about collard greens. <laughs> we have beets in the ground right now, uh, uh, some spinach, and most recently we planted some uh, tomatoes. We pulled up, we harvested. So since we harvested, we were able to uh, plant our next our next cycle, which is tomatoes. So we're pretty, pretty excited about putting those tomatoes in the ground. Well, we want to ask about this whole idea of connecting people to food. Uh, you've been on this particular mission for a long time. Explain that to people. It's clear that the number one cause of death to black people is our lack of knowledge, particularly about food. And we have been disconnected from not just the earth, uh, appreciation for nature, which means food. Um, and I think that if um, our people understood our great legacy or re reminded of our great legacy in the positive, then we would be much better off. Um, it, as he mentioned earlier, it relieves stress. It puts you in community with people who sometimes you wouldn't ordinarily be connected with, but you share stories. Um, the the uh, planting is recreation. I mean, my goal it was to make it just as significant as playing basketball or baseball or whatever. And that's kind of what we've done. And I, um, I think there's a movement, there's a local food movement in Baltimore that rivals any other place in the country 
And um, what I learned from working in Park Heights was that it was the case that um, people who lived in suburban areas would come in and volunteer. I was like, well, <laughs> I know you wouldn't think it would be necessary to have or to consider that there are food deserts in suburban areas, and they're not necessarily what we would call food deserts, but there are blocks where we don't have the information the same way you do in the city. So in this period of time where Black people being recorded for how we die, we're trying to create the atmosphere to magnify how we can live. Jonathan, I want to ask about this whole idea. It's a task. It's not just a kind of, you know, you go to the store, you buy something, and you walk away with it. That that This is a process. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, from the beginning of the season, when we get out there and we have to lay mulch uh, down to create aisles and we have to lay beds down, which is actually putting the proper soil in place. Um, that is that is a big day. We call that the big dig where we go out and we have tons of folks come out and we're just moving earth, uh, preparing the land for what we're going to do. And then we have if we if we can get it done in the same day we try, but a lot of times we can't. So we come back and we have what we call our plant day. So that is more than a notion <laughs> to get out there and put everything in the dirt. Um, but between those times, uh, there's always weeding that needs to be done. There's always watering that needs to be done. Um, and that sense of community is built as we are meeting out there at specific times to make sure that the, that the land is taken care of. And what you find is people get very much invested um, in going to the farm and doing the work. Um, it's stress relief for people. Um, and so I just kind of set things up in a lot of instances and try to make sure when people get there, they have tasks that they could do. But for the most part, planting those seeds is, is just not going out there throwing seeds in the dirt. You have to definitely prepare the soil. You have to take care of what you're planting. You have to know the difference in what you're growing and, and what, what's necessary and what plants need what. So certain things you can put in shaded areas, certain certain plants need a bunch of sun. So you have to do a little bit of, re, a little bit of research uh, to make sure that when folks show up, that real work can be done. It's a lot of work, but uh, a lot of hands make the work real light. Are there any young people involved in this? Because the biggest problem that I have seen is they think everything comes from a supermarket. That's the beauty of the farm. You'd be amazed at the energy that we get when folks come up. So there's a beehive not too far from, from our plot. And once we get folks past, you know, the fact that those bees are not going to bother anybody because they mind their business. The young folks come out there and they are energetic, they're passionate, they're learning. You know, a lot young folks like to learn. We, we we provide a learning opportunity as well, because most people, like you said, as a kid, you think that you go to the store in some kind of way. Magically, those things just arrive at the store. So to see things grow from a seed to actual food um, is something that the kids not only they enjoy, but they enjoy being part of the process. Willie, I want to ask about this idea. A lot of older folks have memories like you had of, you know, going to your granny's or your grandfather's house. Are they still coming out? Yes, we have we have elders who come. Um, and, and like I said, I mean, we're not probably not doing a good job of explaining. Some people um, come because, you know, they have food at home, but they come just for the activity. You know, they take food, but I don't want to say the food is secondary because it's not secondary to me. I take advantage of eating the food 
But some people come just for the community, you know, and it's like, yo, you forgot your greens. <laughs> so so it's um it's it's the activity. And I love to see that happen. And I want to I want to add that because he mentioned kind of the process and the, and this goes to um, this whole idea of community organizing. So we 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 throw a big net in March. So we try to hit in March, the second week of March. So it's probably 100 plus people and each activity we do the number kind of reduces, but it's just the nature of organizing, right? So um, we probably have 30 or 40 families in our CSA. Our CSA is called George Washington Carver Growing Food Together CSA. And we grow in three seasons. So it's spring, summer, and fall. And that kind of simplifies what you look for. And what he was saying earlier about what we grow is based on the weather. Um, so as he mentioned earlier, this is the um, spring cool weather crops, and we're transitioning to summer, and then we'll shift back to um, cool weather crops in the fall. Gentlemen, I want to get out of here on this. What does farming do for you personally? Jonathan? I can honestly say that there's been times where life, as we say, life be life, and uh, besides building a sense of community, that it's a stress relief. Sometimes life is just kind of tough, and I found that going over there being in the garden and just kind of sitting there, just kind of putting my hands in the dirt is, is stress relief. It's become a part of my day to day. Almost. I'm out there maybe three or four times a week, sometimes more. Um, I actually also sit on the board of CEI. So I'm there for their events as well. <laughs> so I'm at the, I'm at the farm probably more, more often than most volunteers. When I'm there, I don't hear the city. I don't hear the highway. I'm just, I'm there and I'm present in that moment doing the work. It is definitely a stress relief for me. And it's a sense of uh, of building community and feeding people. Like feeding people is rewarding. Fe feeding people is um is powerful. So it's, it's, it's all of those things put together is, is, is what it gives me. I understand. Willie, how about you? What does, nah. what does this do for you personally? Because I know you've been at this a while. No, I just like to see people happy, man. And that's part of organizing. I like to eat. So, and I, I love and appreciate the fact that, you know, you can teach this sustainability um, and return, you know, because I do, I, I can't say that I knew everything that I know now because I grew up in Alabama, but it kind of returned to me. And it, and I, it, it, it may it reminded me that it has to be simple. Forming has to be simple or it would not still be here. So to make it complicated was a plan too. And to make us walk away from it was a plan. So our thing is all about returning. And I think that what we've done with a small piece of land has, has done that specifically and very proud of it. But one thing I wanna invite you to, if you have time, we do an activity to promote basically growing uh, and sharing what we do in the garden, what we grow in the garden, we call it the salad and sangria social, which is going to be on June 9th. So um, we invite you to come out. Um, we basically do uh, share food and um, it's uh, uh, basically a big potluck. So it's a potluck of salads and whatever we have in the garden. And it's also a potluck of uh, whatever you can taste and however you do it. And we, but we will have non-alcoholic sangria, so we won't promote sangria as it is, but we will remind you that we have non-alcoholic sangria also. That's Willie Flowers and Jonathan McKinney. Thank you very much for joining us here on Future City. Thank you for having All us. Right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Willie Flowers, Jonathan McKinney, 
and Denzel Mitchell for letting us look in on your farms and what you're growing. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We don't want you to go anywhere. In our next segment, can a garden provide stress relief? Anne-Marie Champ has used her own garden as an oasis. In preparation for this show, I went to the Baltimore Flower Mart in Baltimore's Mount Vernon neighborhood. Between watching people suck on peppermint lemon sticks, I asked, what's growing in your garden? My name is Sarah. I live in Federal Hill. You picked up a bunch of stuff here at the Flower Mart. What did you grab and, and why did you grab it? Um, I have a planter at home that's empty, so I wanted to fill it. And I grabbed stuff that's multiple different colors and heights. I don't know much about plants, so I just picked what I thought looked nice. Now, have you done planting on your on the outside, or is this your first go-round? This will be my first outdoor plants. Most of your plants are indoors? Yeah, I have some indoor plants, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's all beauty. I don't think I got any food, nothing edible. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation what's wrong to what's next. Anne-Marie Champ uses her garden as an oasis. It's where she finds peace. She began gardening as a child and continues to this day. For her, the colors of the blooming flowers is a refuge. I am joined by Amory Champ, and she would be considered your typical gardener. So first of all, let's begin with this. What got you started, Amory, in gardening? When I was a child, I watched my grandfather gardening a lot. He did vegetable gardening, but that's where I learned some of the basic principles. And I started doing seeds in my own backyard. Um, tomato seeds and all these other, and some flowers in my backyard as a kid. Then I went off, grew up, went off to college and everything. And by the time I got a home, I started gardening a mix of flowers and vegetables, like tomatoes and um, cucumbers and things like that. But over the years, I found that I'm more of a flower gardener. I get more pleasure from it. So let's talk a little bit about... um what's growing in your garden these days, you're kind of at the beginning of the season. Um, what's one of your favorite flowers to grow? Peonies. Peonies. Ex- describe to the audience what a peony is. It's like a fluffy rose, but it grows like a little shrub. You can kind of think of it as a big puffy rose. <laughs> That's my best description, but it has a really nice scent and it comes in many different colors. Yeah, and it blooms in in May. (laughs) So uh, if I were to walk through your garden, give me the colors and and the schemes that I would see. Okay, my garden is a very colorful garden, very diverse garden. Um, I have lots of shrubs as a foundation, some flowering, some not. I have a few evergreens. I have peonies, of course, two different colors. I have clematis vines that grow on trellises. I just have a little bit of everything in my garden. It's more like, um, I guess some people would call it sort of like an English garden, like a herbaceous garden. (laughs) I want to ask about, um, you said that sometimes 
initially you started with seeds. Now you're doing um, small plants. When you go to look for these items, what are you looking for? I'm looking for things that grow in the sun versus the shade versus partial shade. I'm looking for the right color, the right color forms. Is it going to be a, am I looking for a spiky flower? Am I looking for a full flower? Am I looking for something that's going to be green all year? Uh, I look at when it blooms because I like a garden that blooms all year round. So I get some things that bloom in the fall. So they just look like green little spiky bushes all summer long. But in the fall, when everything else isn't blooming, then it blooms sort of like the mums and asters. And there's a couple other flowers that bloom late. So I have a garden that blooms basically from March all the way until about the end of November. And that's what I love. Can you tell me a little bit about the do's and the don'ts of a flower garden? Sure. The, the biggest do is to, um, when you pick flowers for your garden, definitely look at the placement as far as whether it's a sun-loving, uh, part, sh part shade-loving, or shade-loving flower. Because when I first started gardening, I made the mistake of just buying what's pretty and putting them where I wanted to see them. And I quickly learned that if you put a shade-loving flower in the sun, it will die or it won't thrive. If you put a sun-loving flower in the shade, it never blooms or it blooms very little. And I thought that was a big, big lesson for me. The other thing is um, putting things together that like the same kind of watering requirements. Because like if you want, if you have something that doesn't like to be watered and you plant it next to something that needs a lot of water, one of them is going to thrive and the other isn't. <laughs> I note that, uh, you know, you do flowers, but do you do any vegetables as well? The only vegetable I do is occasionally I'll do tomatoes. I think I'm going to do a small cherry tomato this year because I love tomatoes. And I always do peppers, uh, the hot peppers, because they're easy. Some of the other vegetables require so much attention that I don't like doing them. And I have rabbits in my yard. So I also have to fence them. And, you know, I don't like I was gonna say, So I'm not alone. You got varmints in your neighborhood. I do. I mean, I, I don't mind them. But they, if you're going to do vegetables and you know you have rabbits and squirrels, you have to also do architecture. <laughs> A lot of fencing. And, and I don't like that. <laughs> One of the things that I think a lot of people get from gardening is this unique therapeutic, if you will, calm. Does that envelop you? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the main reasons I became addicted to gardening, because I liked the way it made me feel. If I feel overwhelmed from work or personal matters, and I go out in a garden for a couple hours, I relax in a way that nothing else relaxes me. And I lose track of time. I'm able to focus my mind on, on something having to do with beauty and just a task at hand. And I just don't do that with other things. I know a lot of people, um, you know, because of either, you know, health reasons or other reasons, sometimes find it difficult to get on their knees, literally dig in the dirt. What would you tell those folks? I would tell them to, there's so much available now where you can get like a raised pot 
and you can garden at a height that's easy to manage. So garden in a way that's accessible for yourself. And uh, also, even if you're gardening in the dirt, you, you don't have to get on your knees. You can get specialized stools, get the right kind of equipment, um, raise the level so that it's not such hard dirt to dig into. And you add soil and amend the soil. There's, there's so much available now. Is there any place in, in, in the Baltimore region that you go, man, I wish I had a garden like that? No, not in particular. I love, like, sometimes I like going to like an arboretum, but to be honest, I like home gardens. So when I see somebody's home garden, even if it's tiny, I like the individual expression of it. And I like when someone gives me a tour of their garden. So I have a couple of friends that have gardens that I've gone into, and it always inspires me. But I really just like doing the gardening <laughs> and enjoying my own garden. <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you often ask your friends, hey, give me a little piece of that. I'm going to take that back. I do. I do. I do. And then I, I've learned over the years how to do propagating. Uh, sometimes I'll get a small plant where I just don't even have to propagate it. I just can just grow it. And I do. I love that. <laughs> a lot of plants in my garden came about that way. And I've given away a lot of pieces of my own garden. Yes. I want to get out of here on this. And, and you tell me what makes it so special for you when you see the end product? It just relaxes me. It gives me a sense of satisfaction. I love the way it makes my home look. Um, I just love it. That whole therapeutic effect is, you, you can't overstate it. It really, really, really does something good for me on the inside. It helps me to balance and level myself when I um, garden and then see the results or when things start to bloom, I'm anticipating when they're going to bloom. I just love it. It brings me lots of joy. And during the pandemic, I expanded my garden because I needed more of an uplift. I'm assuming that uh, they permeate your home with lots of beautiful smells. I don't have I don't have that many really really nice fragrant flowers, and I don't like to cut flowers. Okay. I don't like to bring them in the house. I love them to just linger right where they should outside. So. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, Anne-Marie Champson. You're welcome. And keep that green thumb growing. Thank you so much. Nice meeting you. Thanks, Anne-Marie Champ. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take another break, but don't you go anywhere. In our last segment, we'll hear from Julia Craddock over at the Howard Pete Rawlings Conservatory. But before we go... Let's listen to a Bolton Hill resident who shares what's growing in his backyard. Johnny Rogers, uh, Baltimore, Baltimore uh, native. <laughs> so I, I live in Bolton Hill, and I don't, um, I don't get a lot of direct sun. It's not ideal for tomatoes. So I have to be, um, but I can get some real good tomatoes. I worked on my soil over the years, um, so I have to be very thoughtful of because um, usually they have on the on the little card how long they take to uh, fruit make fruit. Um, so I have to give them the best chances possible. If it says, I want a low number, if it says 60 days till they make fruit, 
and I do things right, maybe in 80 days I'll, I'll get them. So, so yeah, I pay attention to that. And well, I got some sweet peppers, um, and I kind of we have a few gardens in my house. My my uh, roommate she does all the herbs, so I know we have lots of basil and and I don't know a, a bunch of stuff. She takes care of that. I do my passion's the tomatoes. But I do like some peppers and sometimes experiment with squash or some other thing every year. We, we have like a we have a backyard um, and built. I don't know. We never had our soil tested, so we built raised beds, um, and it's been uh, a process getting the soil very nice. But it's, I don't know. Ten years in, it's uh, composting. We have nice soil now. So yeah, it's like cheap raised beds we made. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WIPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. At the turn of the century, Baltimore City was dotted with conservatories, which allowed residents to look at non-native plants in climate-controlled habitats. The only one left standing today is the Howard Pete Rawlings Conservatory in Drude Hill Park. Julia Craddock gives us a peek inside and outside. I am delighted to be joined by Julia Craddock. Julia, I know this, that this city used to have a bunch of these types of facilities. Yours is like the last standing one. Tell the public a little bit about, you know, uh, what it is and what you do. So my role at the conservatory um, is on the horticulture team. I'm assistant horticulturist. So my main roles here are to keep the greenhouse functioning and to keep the plant matter alive. There are five different greenhouses here, so it's a lot to work on. We also have outdoor formal gardens that get planted every year. So it's a very diverse landscape to work in. I was going to say, uh, you mimic certain climate atmospheres. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? So the five greenhouses we have, um, three of them are climate houses. So there is a Mediterranean, there's a tropical, and there's a desert climate house. Um, Each of them showcase plants from different regions around the world that are true to that climate. The other two greenhouses we have are the original buildings there. It includes the orchid room and the palm house. Uh, The palm house was... The original structure built in 1888. It was built when Victorian conservatories were all the rage at the end of the 1800s. So it has a lot of those um, Victorian plants, a lot of palms, uh, sago palms, and a lot of ferns as well. I know one of the things that I always enjoy when I go to to the conservatory is looking at the types of, uh, is it irises that you grow there? There are a lot of irises outside that are bloom right now. Um, We have some perennial beds, which have whatever's in season will come up. So there's some Siberian irises that are really beautiful out there right now. And then there's some bearded irises as well. Um, We also have a lot of tulips in the spring. If you come in the springtime, we do forced bulbs. So we have tulips and daffodils all indoors. There's a theme every year. People can come in and look around. It's a nice time to see some color right before everything else starts to bloom outside. So people will come in, it smells beautiful, and there's a wide variety as well. I know that, uh, you know, the stuff that you have outdoors is sometimes based on a theme. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about what this year's theme is? So we just finished up with our spring show theme this year. So for the outdoor gardens, we do annuals every year. Typically, annual well, annuals are plants, they only grow for one season. And then when winter comes, they die back completely. Sometimes they'll go to seed and come back the next year through seed. But it's not like a perennial where the roots stay alive. So we replant everything brand new every single spring. We're actually planting next week. We have a huge volunteer day. But it's a lot of... Um, beautiful bright colors. We've got a lot of cannas and elephant ears, which are very tropical, marigolds, begonias, salvia plants, um, and everything will bloom all summer long. So it's a great place to come and enjoy yourself. Most of us see the glass uh, building that's outside, but a lot of times you're doing things indoors that uh, you can't do in a climate like this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so all of our greenhouses are um, temperature controlled. We never let them get below 55 degrees because most of the plants that we have inside can't tolerate that temperature and they'll freeze and they'll die. Um, so nothing gets below 55 degrees. And then we try to keep everything below 100 degrees. But in the summertime, it gets so hot around here that we do what we can. I was going to um, say, you don't have windows you can, you can roll down. <laughs> we have some windows, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Talk a little bit about the various palms that you have inside the, the, the conservatory, if you will, because some of these are not, not native. None of these are technically native species, are they? No, none of the palms that we have in the historic palm house are native species. Um, they're from different areas all around the world, mostly tropical areas. There is a wide variety, like different leaf shapes um, that you can come and see. And you can see, of course, their native range, where they're from. Some of the more interesting ones we have, we have two magnificent Bismarck palms with large blue fan-shaped leaves. And both of those palm trees were donated to us by Longwood Gardens, which is in Pennsylvania. And it's a huge DuPont garden facility, if anyone likes public gardens, it's beautiful. So they donated those to us. The rest of the palms were all put in in 2004 when we had our renovation. So they're not from 1888, unfortunately. <laughs> One of the things I think uh, a lot of people do try and do, they try and grow these in greenhouse type facilities, if you will, you know, uh, solariums or whatever. What are some of the things that you would, you would suggest to folks if they're going, because I've seen actual people try and grow palms, of course they die in the winter, and then they try and bring them back. What are some of the things that you would suggest that people think about if they're going to do these in an indoor setting? Hmm. It's not easy, but it can be done. Um, before our renovation in 2004, there were no big garden beds to plant directly inside of in the conservatory. So everything was grown in pots just on a concrete surface. So it can be done. It's nice when you can keep it in a pot and wheel it outside in the summertime to get full sun, a full eight to 10 hours of sun. But if that's not an option, you can grow it inside until it gets too big. But unfortunately, palm trees only have one point of growth, so you can't really prune them the same way you would a regular tree. So you just have to keep it small. Once it's in a pot, it probably won't get too tall. They usually grow to the root zone they're provided. Last but not least, I, I wanna talk a little bit about the folks who come to your facility, many times they're wowed by things. Talk about some of those wow moments, if you will. 
People are definitely wowed. A lot of the times I'll hear people come in and they say, oh, I've passed this building all my life. I've never been in and it's just beautiful. I can't believe I've been missing this. A lot of times we have school groups come in. There's a Little Leaves program, which is all second graders from the Baltimore area. Uh, I love hearing them walk through because they walk into a certain room and everyone's just, wow. And you can just hear the excitement. We have banana trees growing there. We have a lot of ripe bananas on the trees right now, which you can hear people's fascination when they walk up to that. We have coffee trees, papayas, mangoes, olive trees. Those things are actually edible, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, and they're all edible, yes. <laughs> well, it makes a big difference from going to a grocery store and seeing a banana and then seeing a banana on a banana tree. Thank you so much, Julie, for joining us here on Future City. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks, Julia Craddock. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Our last gardener, from the Baltimore Flower Mart is Sunflower, who just moved here from New Jersey. Uh, my name is Sunflower and I'm from New Jersey. I actually just moved to Baltimore a week ago, so hopefully the things that I bought today are going to be what's growing in my garden. So I have a lipstick plant for show and I bought some lettuce and some herbs for growing. Uh, I have a patio now, so I have a little balcony uh, pot that I'm going to be putting my herbs into. Our guests on today's show prove that a garden is more than a space to grow. There is a connection to a greater good. Digging in the dirt connects us to a world we inhabit in a way we know is much larger than ourselves. Thank you to today's guests for sharing their expertise and allowing us to hear their knowledge. To find out more about our guests and their extended conversations, visit the Future City web link on WYPR webpage. Future City is produced and edited by Spencer Bryant. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity, that's one word, at wypr.org. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR, and my producer, Spencer Bryant, and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.